Hi, and welcome to another recording of the Encouraging Word podcast. My name is Stephen Young, and I'm with Paul Bennett, who's the co- Are you a co-host, or are we both equal hosts? Wow. Wait. That's uh, <laughs> Feel like that's something we should discuss off air. Because oh, I, have, yeah. I have certain feelings on that, but I don't know. I don't want to offend you. Well, I think we're on level terms because I'll be co-host and you would be a co-host. So then we're like, well for today. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, we all know who the the, the yeah, weakest link. Is. You have a better radio voice than I do. I don't. I don't have I like a radio, radio voice. voice yeah. I have more of a. Piano voice or More something. More of an empty room voice. <laughs> <laughs> Your voice is better in an empty room voice. Anyways, before we get off track too much, um, uh, we are going to continue, kind of continue our series a little bit, branch off a little bit from our, we did church history, or we're looking at um, different church leaders, and we're going to be um, kind of following in that same vein, but we're going to be looking at the unsung heroes of the church. Um, of Christianity, um, not just church, but also missionaries and other folk had influence within Christianity. So we're going to be looking at unsung heroes, those that um, perhaps you have not heard about. Um, this was a lot of fun for me to research, to um, learn about all these different people um, who have contributed to the Christian faith, moving it forward in our culture, moving it forward um, in theology and, and different missionary works and such. Um so I hope we both hope that this is very valuable um, to you as the listeners, as as perhaps you can learn about someone else that um, we can follow their examples um, in the Christian faith and the Christian walk. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that. But before we get to that, we have our um, Paul's favorite part of the podcast. We have the fit segment. Um, Paul has spent um, several hours thinking of his, and now I think he is ready. Paul, you are up fit segment ready to be dazzled yeah <laughs> several hours <clears throat> to try and come up with anything that's interesting in my life like I don't, it's very telling i suppose but um uh my family and i took opportunity yesterday which was a monday to go to the zoo the cleveland metropolitan zoo mm. and uh, we had been in quite some time and we chose to go on the same day that that all of Cleveland. Uh, I heard. Also chose to I go. heard there's a lot of people there. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> in the in the 50s. The weather was nice, um, so if you were okay with dodging puddles, uh, the zoo was the place to be. So uh, we had a good time. You know, crowds the way the zoo's set up, unless maybe you're in the indoor portions, uh, there's still plenty of room for everybody to, to get around and see what they need to see. But it was uh, it was a good time. My favorite uh, animal, if if I ever oh, get this yeah, question go. on like a, a trivia, your spirit game. animal, is that my spirit of? animal, <laughs> yes. I'm not even really sure what that means. To be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, but I'll look into that later. Well, think of the book uh, Animorphs. I think is kids that transformed into animals. That's What's a, the book called? Animorphs, I think. Something Animorphs. like that. Is yeah. that uh, is that a newer book? No, it's old, old, old. Oh, okay. No, it was when well, I was you were hip when I was a youth. Yeah, yeah, that hasn't been that long. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, it may be my spirit animal because I think I, I like this animal because I feel like I have some co- common uh, personality traits and, and tendencies. It's it's a wolf. I like yeah. wolves. Yes, I, I mean I. <laughs> I guess I won't go into detail. <laughs> yeah. with but um, I like to hunt in packs. Maybe that's it. Yeah, there you so, go. So, uh, you're gonna give me a countdown. 
we went to the zoo and the, the wolves were, were very active yesterday, which is not typical from my experience at the zoo. A lot of times they're just curled up in a, a corner, um, you know, sleeping the day away, but they were active and uh, there's a, a number more wolves than we are accustomed to having seen in the past. And uh, it's always fun to, to take some time to observe them and see who the alpha male is, uh, you know, trying to, trying to discern which one is uh, more protective or which one is trying to intimidate the other ones. And the other thing we noticed uh, yesterday is that the wolves had their winter coats on. And by winter coats, <laughs> I don't mean their, their North Face jackets, you know, uh, zipped up tight around them. I mean, their uh, fur had grown in much thicker and, and longer for the winter season. And something I you know, was aware happened in a while, but for whatever reason, don't remember ever seeing that at the Cleveland Zoo, even though we visited in the winter many times. But uh, it was fun. It was fun to watch them do their thing. It was fun to uh, check out the, the uh, bears, a couple of black bears that were, um, that were cuddling together, which uh, my daughter and my wife were particularly excited about um yeah other other animals that were active the, the flamingos we caught on the way out and found out uh, fun fact that they're only pink because they eat a certain kind of shrimp that makes them pink <laughs> did you know that steven uh yeah i knew that oh you knew that uh, long time i learned that in elementary school or something like that impressive okay <laughs> all right yeah i've known that for a long time but uh, no, I just, yeah, I just learned that yesterday, but, uh, yeah, it was a good trip to the zoo. Interesting and, uh, thought provoking for me. I always try and learn something new every time I go. So, uh, anyhow, if you live in Cogget County, it's free on Mondays in case you didn't know that. So I highly encourage you to head out on a Monday, free Monday or, or anytime. Uh, it's a great way to get out and start, uh, getting ready for spring and, and, uh, having that unique experience. So in other words, Paul is saying he is a werewolf. And when the moon is full, he transforms um, into one of those creatures. That's on precisely a, on, on a Saturday, saying. right? Right, right, right. Yes, <laughs> just the before I have Sunday. In common with wolves, at right. one, I like to hunt in packs, and two, <laughs> I'm a werewolf. Yes. So. And you also said they were lazy and they sleep all the time. And that <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's about the only thing I yeah. don't share with them. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, yes. Clearly not. All right, my fit segment is um, so. Paul said he had never heard of this show, which uh, maybe he wouldn't. He's, he's not really into food. I mean, he eats a lot of food besides <laughs> besides vegetables. I'm just into food. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but the show called Kids Baking Championship, um, it's on the Food Network. Um, Discovery. We have Discovery Plus streaming, so it's on there. Um, and I've watched actually several seasons with my wife, Emily, and... Um, it's kind of it's an interesting show just because they're young kids and they can bake amazingly, um, and it's just in contrast to my own baking skills. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> I'm pretty bad, and they put me to shame by far. I don't, I can't remember the last time I've baked anything. Uh, I was like cookies maybe for my parents when I lived at home. Twelve years you, uh, ago or something. Yeah, I heard you. You can do a, a mean uh, pizza. And oh yeah. The, yeah, yeah, that's or true. Or chicken nuggets. Yeah, I can do pizza, chicken nuggets. I yeah, those are my staple meals. So if I ever have a restaurant, it's just gonna, <laughs> it's just gonna be pizza and nuggets. Um, but yeah, so I, I really like the show because it's it's interesting to see what they make. Um, well, one thing that is kind of I do like the show, but I also feel like it's 
the kids are ultra competitive and they're acting like little mini adults sometimes. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if it's great to have kids be so competitive that they're basically not beating up on one another, but you know, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty intense. So, but yeah, kids baking championship, check it out. If you haven't heard about it, Paul's going to start watching it, um, with his wife, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, How of old course. are these kids? Are we talking about uh, yeah, that's a good two, question. Three? They're... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that what they're... <laughs> How old are They're probably... How old's your daughter? 15. 15. They're a little Maybe bit younger than her, so maybe like 12 to okay. 13, okay. something like that. All right. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, a little bit younger than her, so... Yeah, maybe she can be on it. Do you help... Does she ever help you cook? She does. There she you does. go. She helped me last night. Oh, uh, wow. We made hamburger helper. Nice. Yes. Was yes. she the helper she, or the hamburger helper? She, yes. <laughs> yes. It, it reminds me of that Shake and Bake commercial uh, back in the day when a girl was like, it's Shake and Bake. Can I help? <laughs> yep. So, I don't remember yeah, that She commercial. helped me out last night. Big time. Good. That's good. Shout out to Bryn if you're out there. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to have Paul start off with um, his first unsung hero, and maybe this is someone that you haven't heard of or someone that you have. So, Paul, are you ready? I am ready. It's going to be hard to transition from (laughs) Totino's Pizza and Kids Bake Offs, but uh, I'll do my best. So, uh, yes, Stephen and I, our intention was we spent so much time uh, focusing on some of the the names of uh, names and, and folks that you are well aware of uh, most of them some of the, the folks who have been movers and shakers in the church you know been most of them in, in positions of leadership um, whether you know being a uh, actual the, the Pope of the the old Catholic Church or somebody who started a denomination at some point along the way we wanted to take some time to just investigate some cool stories of, of individuals who were very impactful uh, of, um, in the faith, maybe in, specifically through the church, uh, but uh, that you may not have been familiar with, or maybe you heard the name but don't really know their story. So uh, we're going to do these in, in order of uh, the time that they lived. So I'm going to go first with uh, John Woolman. John Woolman. Uh, John Woolman was born in 1720 in New Jersey. And um, here's a, just a, a little teaser to uh, give you a sense of, of who he was. Two years before his death, Woolman had a, a dream in which he heard an angel announce, uh, John Woolman is dead. And when he awoke, he was really shaken by this and he pondered it. And he said, at length, I, I felt divine power prepare my mouth that I could speak. And then I said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And he wrote in, in his journal that he perceived this uh, phrase, John Woolman is dead, meant no more that, uh, that his, his death was coming, but that the death of his own will was coming or his resistance uh, to God. And so this was a very pivotal moment late in life for a woman and gives you a sense of who he was. He was, uh, he was a man of great spiritual insight. Um, he was known as, he was a, a mystic, uh, some people would describe him as a, a mystic, and he was also uh, one of America's first abolitionists. So uh, if you don't know the story of John Woolman, buckle up, because uh, it's, it's going to be fun. Woolman, as I said, was, was born in 1720 in New Jersey. He was born into a devout Quaker family, 
Um, and uh, we actually made reference to the Quakers when we were working our way through, through church history. But uh, he, very early in life, um, his, his faith became very important to him, uh, became a very devout follower of Christ. Um, but when he was 21, he was hired as a merchant. And he began in his early adult life having some of these spiritual experiences, much like the one that we described uh, at the end of his life. And he called them, throughout his life, he called them openings, as if uh, God was reaching through some, some opening to uh, directly communicate something to him. Um, but uh, so he had this, this spiritual side of him, this, this very mystical um, and, and, uh, and powerful connection with God that uh, he wrote about and, and spoke about quite a bit. But he also had a, a heart for uh, justice and, and a love for, uh, for all people. And uh, that became an important piece of his life and how he lived out his, his faith. Um, one encounter that he had uh, early in life, this is when he was a merchant, um, around about age 21, his employer asked him to write up a, a bill of sale for a black female. And as, as naive as I, as I was, when I first read those words, I thought, oh, okay, so um, this African-American woman was coming to purchase something from the shop, and he was asked to basically uh, help check check her out and get her on her way but uh, no he was being asked to, to write up a bill of sale for a slave uh, for the slave to to be sold uh, to a different owner and woman had strong convictions about this and it really um, really bothered him and, and he objected he uh, he believed that in his words slave keeping uh, was a, a practice inconsistent with the Christian religion and of course in 1720 this was not uh, is commonly held of a view as, as it is now. And um, so he, he refused to uh, do this, but then his master insisted that he did it, and um, he felt duty-bound to honor his master at the same time that he was working for, so he ended up uh, going through with, with writing up this bill of sale. But it, it absolutely changed him because it just shook him to the core. Um, he, he ended up transitioning from uh, being a merchant to uh, taking up tailoring. He chose tailoring, actually, not because he was in love with tailoring, but because he thought it would allow him uh, to, to earn a, an income that would be sufficient while still allowing him plenty of time to focus on other pursuits. And so he took up tailoring and went into business and actually became very successful and there was a time when he started encouraging his customers to go to his competitors because he didn't want his time to be so taken up uh, by, by tailoring. And um, he, uh, these are his words. He believed truth required him to live more free from, from outward cumbers. So um, he was willing to, to push away uh, wealth and, and an income in order to focus on things that he was more passionate about. Uh, around about the age of 36, he got married. Um, he took two important journeys through the American South, and during those journeys, his experiences convinced him more than ever that slavery was, once again in his words, a dark gloominess hanging over the land. Uh, a few years later, 1754, and then in 1762, he published uh, a text called Some Considerations on the Keeping of Negroes, he argued for the connection between Christianity and freedom, uh, freedom for those individuals. His concern about the extreme oppression of many slaves also translated 
uh, into concern for Native Americans. He, he would visit Indian villages on the Pennsylvania frontier, and he supported the Moravians, uh, who were actively in mission to the Native Americans. And uh, He tried to, to come alongside them in their efforts. Uh, he worked to curtail the, the sale of rum to the Indians because he saw how detrimental it, it was uh, to them and, and their community. He worked for a more just Indian land policy than the government was interesting in, in, uh, provi- interested in providing at the time, but he fought on behalf of the Native Americans that they would be treated uh, more justly. And uh, all the while, he maintained a, a strict manner of life uh, for himself, He traveled by foot whenever possible. He wore garments that uh, didn't have any dye in them because he uh, had been told that the dyes were produced by slave labor. So he refused to to benefit from slave labor in in that way. He abstained from the use of, of, in fact, any product connected with the slave trade. He refused hospitality uh, when he was traveling and speaking from the homes of, of slaveholders because he recognized that the luxury that those families enjoyed was due to uh, them having slaves. And uh, his views, once again, on slavery were very unusual for, for whites in his day, but even un, uh, unusual amongst his fellow Quakers, uh, who were known as, as being very justice-minded as well, but uh, he was ahead of the curve in, in that respect too. But uh, because of how adamant he was, how passionate he was about it, he's uh, considered largely the reason that the Quakers ended up abandoning uh, slaveholding voluntarily within 25 years of his death. So he, he moved to that process along, especially for his, his Quaker uh, brothers and sisters. His method of accomplishing this was always uh, moral persuasion. He would, he would speak uh, passionately about it, but consistent practice as well. The decisions he made, how he carried himself, how he lived, uh, reinforced this. Um, just as a, a quick story, in 1758, he preached a sermon against slavery in a rural community uh, between Philadelphia and, and, and Baltimore. And he was taken to the home of a, a man named Thomas Woodward for, for dinner. And when Woolman determined that the uh, quote-unquote Negro servants that uh, were serving him, were caring for him, were actually slaves, in the midst of the meal, he got up and he quietly slipped out of the house without sla- uh, saying a word because he, he didn't want to be part of um, what was going on in, in the culture, the realities that existed there. And the owners, uh, slave owners' conscience, this uh, Thomas Woodward, was, was so troubled uh, in seeing Woolman do that, uh, that the next morning he vowed to liberate his slaves and, and had a complete change of heart. In 1772, nearing the end of his life, uh, he visited England to preach, uh, finally traveling overseas and uh, spent some time impacting the Quakers uh, in particular in London and surrounding areas. Uh, but within a few months of his arrival, at a, a relatively young age, even for that time, age 52, um, he grew sick and he, he died. He was buried in England. But uh, a woman, I, I think, got my attention just because uh, he, he never held a, um, a, a highly heralded post in, in a church necessarily or uh, some sort of government agency. Or, you know, he wasn't a, he wasn't a huge leader from that standpoint, based on position, his impact was because of his, his passion and his willingness to, to live as a person of integrity and speak up against uh, injustices in his day. And he was well before his time um, 
in in particular in those things that he spoke against and uh, i think is an inspiration to all of us uh, to discern what that might look like in our day and age and try and live in the same manner so that's john woolman for you uh, now you know exactly who he is great that was really good thank you paul um <clears throat> the second person that we have here um, that i have is richard allen um richard allen was born in february 14th 1706 1760 and died in March 26, 1831. Uh, he was a minister and educator, writer, and one of uh, America's most active and influential black leaders. Um, in 1794, he founded the African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, um, the first independent black denomination in the United States. He opened his first AME church in 1794 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Wait, was Woolman from Philadelphia to you? I did say that. Or did you say Pennsylvania? He was uh, New Jersey, from New, New Jersey. Jersey, but it oh, did yeah. reference having spent yeah. some time and uh, leading in that area. So yeah, there you go. He was probably, let's see, when when Alan was born, yeah, he would yeah, have been yeah. he would have been almost gone. Right. <laughs> the later gone, stages right. of life. Exactly. Too bad. Right. He probably would have got along really right. well. Right. Well, I'm sure Alan probably heard of some of the work that Woman was doing. Absolutely. At some time. Yeah, benefited from it. Um, yeah, definitely. Allen was born into slavery, slavery in Philadelphia in 1760. Yeah, he was converted at age 17 and began preaching on his plantation and at a local Methodist church, preaching whenever he had the chance. Some, he's quoted as saying, sometimes I would wake from my sleep preaching and praying, um, he later recalled. His owner, one of Allen's early converts, was so impressed with him that he allowed Allen to purchase his freedom. In 1786, blacks made up about 10% of the Methodist Church in the United States. So uh, the Methodist actually has an okay background when it comes to race and race relations, um, early Methodist Church in the United States. Um, and through whites and blacks often worshiped together, blacks enjoyed, um, they didn't enjoy quite all the freedoms and equality, but they were worshiping in the same, same general area. Segregation was still, seating was still typical. The areas reserved for blacks was usually um, called, in a, not to anyone, but the Negro Pew or the African-American Corner. Uh, so St. George um, had no history of segregation. The church, St. George, had no history of segregation until the later 1780s. Then white leaders required black parishioners to use the chairs around the walls rather than the pews. During one service in November 1787, a group of blacks sat in some new pews that, unbeknownst to them, had been reserved for whites. As these blacks knelt in prayer, a white trustee came over to them, grabbed Absalom Jones, um, um, Allen's associate, and began pulling him away, saying, you must get up and you must not kneel here. Um, Jones asked him um, to wait until the prayer was over, but the trustee retorted, no, you must get up now, or I will call for aid to force you away. But the group finished praying before um, they got up and walked out. So Alan, um, for some time, thought for some time before this, Alan was thinking about establishing an independent black congregation, um, and this incident pushed him over the edge. Nevertheless, he had the desire; he had no desire to leave the Methodism or the local conference. Um, he's quoted saying, "I was confident." Um, he later wrote that this was no religious sect or de denomination, um, that there was no religious sect or denomination that would split the capacity of the colored people as well as the Methodist Church, or the plain and simple gospel suits best for any people. Still, So he still recognized that blacks 
but he still recognized blacks needed a safe place to worship in freedom. Um, so Alan's friend and collaborator, um, um, Absalom Jones, they left Meth- he left the Methodist Church entirely, establishing the Black Episcopal Meeting with oversight with a white bishop. But Allen and 10 other black Methodists stayed with the Methodist Church founding um, Bethel Church in the old blacksmith shop. Um, and in June 1794, Bethel opened with the ceremony led by the Bishop Francis Asbury, which um, is pretty well known within the Methodist Church. Um, the Bethel Church was enormously successful in 18. 18- um, 10 meth, um, membership rose from original 40 members to almost 400 members. Um, the church had um, become black Philadelphia's most in, in most important institution. The success of Bethel angered and worried um, white Methodist ministers who were inset, incensed by Allen's refusal to allow them to control the church. They attempted to take Bethel over um, uh, and they won a lawsuit to take the building from them, actually. Uh, won a lawsuit to sell the building. But Allen uh, was incensed by this, by losing the lawsuit, but he was determined not to lose. So good finance, financing planning and enthusiasm for fundraising, he enabled him to quickly raise $10,000, over $10,000, and he bought back the church um, that the uh, white Methodists were trying to sell. Um, so in 1816, Allen and representatives from other black Methodist churches formally broke from the Methodist church and established a new denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Allen was appointed bishop, um, and then in major cities from north to south, blacks elected their own, um, were elected from their own. Um, black clergy began speaking out against slavery and organizing voluntary um, organizations aimed at social reform and self-improvement. So... Um, and all told, Allen oversaw the rapid growth of the AME's mother church in Philadelphia, which grew to 7,500 members in 1820s. The nomination beca- um, became, by all accounts, the most significant black institution in the 19th century. Um, and today it has 6,000 churches and over um, 2 million members. So um, that's Richard Allen. I uh, had a very huge influence, um, not just in the Methodist Church, but had a huge influence in American culture. Um, huge influence among African-Americans, um, influence within Christianity as um, he sought for a place for African-Americans to worship um, without the segregation and the racism. And so, yeah, that's Richard Allen, really important figure in church history. Wow. And it all started with him uh, just probably being nurtured in the faith by uh, his parents or grandparents or right. whoever else lived on the, the plantation with right. him and then uh, taking up preaching to his fellow slaves in that context and, and poke off from there. Right. What a powerful story. Right. All right. Um, and I, I heard the name Absalom Jones, too, and now that I hear those two together and know the context, it's all coming back to me. Um, our third individual that we're going to spend some time with uh, today is Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby. And if the name sounds at all familiar, it may be because... Fanny. Fanny, get it, sorry. <laughs> wow. I feel like anything I say from this point on is completely tainted. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. She would be She would be hurt by that. <laughs> yeah, scene. that's true. Yeah, that's Fanny's true. a good name. It is. Her name was actually uh, Frances. Oh. But she yeah. went by Fanny. Yeah. Um, not sure why. <laughs> but 
she, uh, she you'll, you'll find her name, if uh, it sounds familiar, you'll find it in many pages of the Methodist hymnal, or other hymnals, uh, in fact, because uh, she was an incredibly popular and uh, well-written hymn writer. So uh, we'll get to that uh, as we talk through the early stages of her life. But uh, Frances Crosby, or uh, who would, would eventually be known as Frances Crosby, Actually, no. Uh, that was her. That was her birth name as well. Because uh, when she got married, she did not take um, her husband's name. So, born uh, Frances Fanny Crosby in 1820 in New York, and uh, she was the only child of uh, a widower and, and his uh, second wife. So, had a stepmother, her father, and a half sister from her father's uh, first marriage. Uh, but uh, in uh, some, some incredibly uh, difficult things happened to Fanny early in life. Uh, for one, according to her, her autobiography, she lost her sight uh, to an eye infection and um, what uh, at least history is recorded to be a, a fairly ignorant uh, doctor who treated it and completely misdiagnosed what she was dealing with. And so at the age of six weeks, uh, six weeks old, she had uh, become completely blind. And her father ended up dying uh, when she was only six months old. So uh, by the time she was six months old, uh, hopefully um, you know, the, the trauma of, of these things was uh, not as impactful because of her age. But uh, she had been blinded and uh, she had lost her, her father. And um, she was left then to be raised by her, her mother, who was actually her, her stepmother and uh, maternal grandmother. Uh, but despite all of these tragedies, she grew to be an active and, and happy child, uh, had a, a very positive childhood from 1835 to, 19, or to 1843. Uh, then when she was uh, from the ages of 15 to 23, she attended the New York Institution for the Blind in New York City. And um, one might think that uh, for somebody who was uh, blind to, almost from birth, that that learning Braille and uh, the incredible tool that, that it is uh, for people in that situation would have been a big part of her life. But uh, it turns out that Braille was just being developed at this time, and it would not be uh, put into widespread use until decades later. So Crosby never never uh, became accustomed to the system, never really used it. Um, so she had her own methods of, of getting around in, in life. But uh, she showed early on in life an, an inclination to... Uh, to write and to particularly to poetry and uh, the school that she attended the New York Institution for the Blind began to recognize her gift and she became um, one of the, the most well-known and well thought of students uh, for the gifts that she demonstrated in that area and, um, and actually became uh, known outside of the school such that she was being called upon uh, in her writing in, in different venues for different things she contributed for example, a, a poetic eulogy on uh, President William Henry Harrison when he passed away, and uh, that was published in the New York Herald. She published uh, verses and poems in other newspapers. In 1844, she uh, published her first full volume called The Blind Girl and Other Poems. And in 1851, uh, seven years later, a second full volume, uh, Monterey and Other Poems, and uh, she went on to write then, starting to see the overlap with, with music, a su successful uh, cantata called The Flower Queen. And she wrote lyrics for a number of different songs, uh, and I would bother to read their names if any of us 
had been alive in, in 1850, um, but you probably will never have heard of them. But uh, in, in her day, she was really popular, really well thought of uh, for her gifts of, of uh, composing. After her graduation, she remained at the New York Institution for the Blind as a teacher of uh, English grammar and rhetoric and of ancient history, so a wide uh, area of, of um, intellect. And she stayed at the school there until 1858. That year, she married uh, Alexander Van Alstein, who was also blind, and uh, went on to um, be somebody who would write music to many of Crosby's hymns that uh, she would eventually start writing. He was considered, her husband, to be one of the best organists in New York City. Um, so after being married, they ended up having a child, but the, their only child born in 1859 died in infancy. So yet another tragedy in Crosby's life. And uh, her and her husband, uh, although they remained married, had a unique circumstances where they, they eventually ended up living apart as they pursued separate career paths. And her husband would pass away in 1902 with them still married, but living in, in separate um, homes. But about 1864, so this uh, puts her, she's, she's already in her, her fourth uh, decade of life, she began writing hymns. And throughout the remainder of her life, she wrote between 5,500 and 9,000 hymns. And you're asking why such a wide range? Why do we not know how many she wrote? Uh, well, it's because of, of the numerous pseudonyms that she used uh, when she was writing those hymns, as many as 200 different pseudonyms. And the story goes that she started using these pseudonyms because the, uh, those that were publishing her hymns became uncomfortable that her name appeared um, in so, on so many pages of, of their hymnals and all the other writers would feel bad because they weren't equally represented. Uh, so as much loved as she was, she had to start using other names, other, uh, these uh, pseudonyms to write under um, so that she didn't have a monopoly on um, her name being on every page of the hymnal. Some of the, the hymns that she's most known for, uh, maybe a few will be familiar to you, uh, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Rescue the Perishing, Blessed Assurance, The Bright Forever, uh, Savior, More Than Life to Me, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Um, let's see, I got a few more here. Where'd they go? Uh-oh, I'll find them and come back to them. Here we go. Um, <laughs> Safe in the arms of Jesus, Jesus keep me near the cross. So uh, she, uh, she is very well represented to this day in, in the Methodist hymnal. And uh, many are, of her hymns are ones uh, that I personally love tremendously. Uh, and she was especially popular in, in the Methodist church. For a time, the Methodist church observed uh, each year a Fanny Crosby Day. And uh, just uh, celebrated her hymn writing abilities. Uh, most prominent among those that she collaborated with who were musicians uh, was Ira Sankey. And you may remember that name from our uh, episode, which we covered Dwight Moody. And um, he and Sankey traveled together and um, put on the, uh, what are they called? Uh, crusades, right? Their yeah. crusade program. And so uh, Sankey and, and Crosby were also working on the side in the background to um, to compose these hymns together. Sankey provided the music and, and Crosby uh, the lyrics. In 1897, she published a final volume of poetry, uh, later wrote two volumes of an autobiography, 
uh, Fanny Crosby's life story and memories of 80 years. And then uh, she would die of a stroke following a, a prolonged illness when she was 94 years old. So uh, what an incredible life she lived. Um, just so you get a taste for for her uh, gifts, this was from her first poem that she wrote at age eight. Uh, she, she wrote, Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She had uh, people, many points in her life, approach her and express sympathy that uh, she was blind. And um, one instance, uh, her response has been recorded. Uh, she, she heard the comment. She said, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. And her faith was uh, incredibly strong. Um, even early in life, while she was writing her poetry, she also took up the, the practice of memorizing scripture. She would memorize, and this really puts me to shame, five chapters of, of the Bible every week. Uh, even as a child, she could recite on command anything from the Pentateuch, which was the first, the whole first five books of the Bible, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and uh, many Psalms, chapter and verse. So she memorized tons and tons of uh, scripture and i uh, just got one more quick story for you and then we'll wrap up uh, fanny crosby here um, musicians would often come to her for lyrics uh, once again so that she would sort of write, the, write the words to the songs that they had composed and one day musician william doan uh, whose name is familiar to me but i have to look and see if i can place exactly why he dropped by her house for a visit and begged her to put some words to a tune that he had recently written and he was about to perform at an upcoming Sunday school convention. And the only problem was that his train to the convention was leaving in 35 minutes. And so he sat at the piano in her home and, and played the tune for her. And, uh, and Franny Crosby sat there and listened in. And, and then uh, her response, your music says, safe in the arms of Jesus. Scribbling out the hymn's words immediately in, in less than that 35 minutes. <coughs> And uh, she told him, read it on the train and hurry. You don't want to be late. And she sent uh, Doan on his way with the lyrics to his hymn. And it became one of Crosby's most famous hymns uh, that she ever wrote. And finally, uh, I mentioned she died at 94, a month shy of her 95th birthday. The final stanza uh, of a hymn that she wrote was this. You will reach the river brink some sweet day by and by. So much beloved hymn writer. Um, you know, I think the, the people that perform uh, music often get so much of the credits. And, and of course, this is true. And, in, in, uh, you know, even even popular artists today, you don't know a lot about those behind the scenes often that are writing the lyrics or producing. But uh, Fanny Crosby, especially in the life of the church in uh, recent centuries, one of the most instrumental Ooh, you see what I did there? Instrumental. Oh, yeah. Good job. yeah. In uh, <laughs> in spreading the word of God through song, through him, through poetry. An incredible, incredible lady, especially with all the, the trials and, and struggles that she faced in life. So uh, there you go. Now you know uh, everything you ever wanted to know more about Fanny Crosby. Oh, it was good. That was uh, inspirational. I thought perhaps you were going to sing us a song of hers. Is that... 
Will you do a duet with me? No, no, no. Okay, no, well, then the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was a safe response because there was I no think, way. I uh, think, yeah, I can try. Okay, yeah. go ahead. I don't know any of her songs, so I oh, can't. Oh, let me get you some words. <laughs> I could pull them up for you. Uh, we'll, we'll have to do a, we'll do a separate podcast of us just singing. That would be great. Yes, <laughs> yes. One day before the end of time, <laughs> right. we'll yeah. come to you with that podcast. Oh, my goodness. But that's good. Um, so the last person we're gonna um, that I'm gonna discuss is Watchman Nee. Um, Watchman Nee. So m- perhaps you may have heard of him, but he uh, was a Chinese church leader and Chinese teacher who worked in China during the 20th century. Um, during his 30 years of ministry, Nee published many books expounding the Bible. He established churches throughout China, held many conferences to train Bible students, and church follower, church workers, following the. Um, and then following the communist revolution in China, and he was persecuted and imprisoned for his faith, spent the last 20 years of his life in prison. But Watchman Nee, um, at least from here in America, um, he's probably the most well-known um, Chinese Christian, I guess you could say, as just for here in America. But if you are listening here, um, listening to this podcast in China, we want to welcome you. Um, and, uh, I'm sure you probably know of other, other missionaries in China. Um, so yeah, so in the spring of, a little bit of his testimony, um, in the spring of 1920, when Ni was 17 years old, um, his mom, Dora Yu, um, was invited to hold 10 days, he was, uh, she was invited to a 10-day revival at a church called Heavenly Place in Futsu. I think that's right. Fusu? Is that how you say Chinese? If, so. you're, if you're looking at me to, to help you out Maybe with you that. you say it faster. Like, Fusu. Yes, yeah, I'm sure that's it. Uh, after Nee's mother attended these meetings, um, she was moved um, to apologize to her son for previous incident of unjust punishment. Her action impressed Nee so much. Um, actually, I should say this on the side. Um, Watchman Nee wasn't his... It's kind of his Americanized name. He has a Chinese name that I cannot pronounce. But watch you if we look look up Watchman Nee, you'll find him. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's just a side note. Her her action of um, apologizing to her son for unjust punishment, her action impressed Nee so much that he determined to attend this next the next day's evangelical meetings. Um, he wanted to see what was taking place at this church that was holding these revivals. Um, and after returning from the meeting, according to Nee, um, this is kind of uh, Nee's own account. Um, this is a quote of what Nee said after t- attending those meetings. On the evening of the 28th, on the, on the evening of 28th of April, 1920, I was alone in my room, struggling to decide whether or not to believe in the Lord. At first, I was reluctant, but as I tried to pray, I saw the multitude of my sins and the reality of the efficiency of Jesus as the, as the Savior. As I visualized the Lord's hand stretched out on the cross, they seemed to be welcoming me. And the Lord was saying, I am waiting here to receive you. Realizing the effectiveness of Christ's blood and cleansing my sins and being overwhelmed by such love, I accepted him there. Previously, I had laughed at people who had accepted Jesus, but that evening the experience became more real, became real for me. And I wept and confessed my sins, seeking the Lord's forgiveness. As I made my first prayer, I I knew the joy and peace um, as such I had never known before. Light seemed to flood in the room, and I said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, you have indeed been gracious to me. So, testimony of, of, of Nee. 
This is this amazing, amazing testimony. After his conversion, he desired to be trained as a Christian worker. He first attended Dora Yu's Bible Institute in Shanghai um, while he was still in high school. However, he was dismissed uh, because of his uh, bad and lazy habits, um, such <laughs> as sleeping late. <laughs> Eventually, he's uh, seeking to improve his character. Um, it brought him into close contact with the missionary Margaret Barber, um, who became his teacher and mentor. Um, Nee would, be, would visit Barber on a weekly basis in order to receive spiritual help, um, in order to receive help staying, um, staying awake. Staying, yeah, staying <laughs> awake. <laughs> uh, Barber treated Nee as a, as a young learner and frequent administrated strict discipline. Uh, when she died in 1930, though, Barber left all her belongings to Nee, so... Mm. Um, they became really close, um, and she had a huge influence on him and his ministry. Um, so a little bit about Watchman Nee's ministry. So Watchman Nee had a, ri- a rich ministry. Um, uh, rich ministry was the issue of both revelation and suffering. Um, he carried out this ministry by preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, traveling, contacting people, corresponding with people, holding conferences, conducting trainings, producing publications. Washington not only spoke frequently, but privately and publicly, but he was a prolific writer. Um, his publications included gospel tracts, um, papers, n- newsletters, books, hymns, and a chart of other biblical prophecies. Um, he made a chart of biblical prophecies. His writings are contained in a set of 62 volumes entitled The Collected Works of Watchman Nee. I know Paul is a big reader, so 62 volumes would... Do you good, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot to read there. Um, Which the span of his first publication was in 1922, and his final recording um, was in 1950. He's also about building up local churches. Um, His primary objective was um, building up the local churches um, and having um, them be able to bear testimony and unity um, of all the churches um, to give glory to God through through these churches in China. He is also um, was invested in the next generation. Um, he looked at rising, the, he um, looked to raise up the number of youths to continue the testimony and the work of the next generation. Um, his, his ideal was to um, help young people live a corporate life and practice spiritual life that is receiving training for the purpose of edification and to learn to read the scriptures and pray in order to build up good character um, so he had a, a huge influence in China, but around 18, 18, around April 10th, 1952, Watchman Nee was arrested in Shanghai by the public security officers, um, and this is during the communist revolution, um, and he was sent to be re-educated, and then on January 11th, 1956, there was a nationwide, um, sweep targeting co-workers and elders in local churches. Some died in labor camps while others faced long prison sentences. Um, one year before Nee's death in 1972, his wife Charity um, died due to an accident and high blood pressure. Nee was not allowed to attend her funeral, and it was Charity's eldest sister that had the responsibility of caring for Nee while he was in prison. Um, because only his wife was allowed to care for him. So Nee was in prison for the last 20 years of his life. Um, in 19, June 1972, they got notice that um, Nee had passed away. Um, his eldest, 
eldest grand aunt and uh, so this is a testimony actually from his grand niece so they got news in june 72 so his grand niece said my eldest grand aunt and i rushed to the labor farm but when we got there we learned that he had already been cremated um, she said that we could only see his ashes but before his departure he left the piece of paper under his pillow which had several lines of big words written in a shaking hand um, he wanted to testify to the truth which he had even until his death with this lifelong experience that truth is so this is he wrote on the note christ is the son of god who died for the redemption of sinners and the resurrect and resurrected after three days this is the greatest truth in the universe i die because of my belief in christ watchman knee um, so that was a letter that they found underneath his pillow um, when they went to go um, discover about his death in june of 1972. so watch when has a huge um, influence within uh, christianity in china um, and just they as some of you may not know but the church is um, growing a lot in southeast asia and china and korea and japan and um, and i would think that watchman Nee is um, one of those who um, though he died in, in 72 but had a huge influence on the generations after him um, and many of his writings um, and his quotes can be found here in america matter of fact so it doesn't matter whether you're in America or not, um, the gospel still um, crosses continents and oceans, and, and the truth um, is still true whether you speak Chinese or speak English or whatnot. Um, so Watchman Nee, I would really encourage anyone to, um, actually I would encourage anyone to look up um, all these people that we spoke about today. Um, yeah, that's Watchman. Wow. That's uh, quite, quite a powerful story, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I think we take for granted sometimes the freedoms we have here in America, yeah. especially those religious freedoms. And right. of course, at times uh, they can they can allow us to fall into apathy and, and complacency, and there's a danger in that too. But uh, the opposite extreme is of uh, what folks like me experienced uh, in their times of ministry, and simply trying to live out their faith and being persecuted to the point of spending 20 years in prison. So. Right. Hard to wrap your head around that, but um, that's that's uh, you know, the world that we live in, and and or that others are living in, dealing with. So, um, just uh, all the more sense of, of urgency to, to live uh, faithfully wherever, whenever we are, and and to uh, bring others into the faith. So we've finished with uh, Fanny and Knee, and. Um, I thought that was interesting, Fanny and me, to wrap things up. <laughs> I wish we had a guy named like Toe or a yeah, lady yeah. named Cheek or something. But yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> there I go breaking this sacred space. I know it was it Sorry was great that. until you dropped that joke. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Well, thank you, Stephen, and uh, thanks for listening in, folks. And believe it or not, we're we're rounding the corner, heading towards Lent. So, uh, if you're an active part of this congregation. We encourage you to look into one of the Lent studies and see how you can join us for that journey beginning in, uh, on Ash Wednesday, March the 2nd, and come out worship with us and and then uh, pursue a, a Holy Lent with us, Holy Season of, of just uh, reflection on uh, where we're at, what are our areas that we need to shore up maybe are, and how we can be best prepared, uh, mind, body, spirit, soul, to, to experience uh, Christ's death and, and resurrection that are coming uh, just a few months down the road as we journey through that season together. So 
Um, I hope you all are well. For those uh, who are with us on Sundays, look forward to seeing you at any of our normal services. And uh, others, you're always welcome to join us. Friends, have a a great week, and uh, we'll catch you next time.